world's not as simple as it used to be. It's not enough to be a good guy anymore. We have to be the best. The time has come. All will be accounted for. Or we will hunt them. Stand up. It's time to be the hero we were always meant to be. What's interesting to me is that we sound like we were on a 2001 phone call to you, not and not just you to us. Yeah. That's what's interesting to me. It was bad for everyone. That's very, yeah. Yeah. Nobody had a good time. No. Everybody <laughs> will remember that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, speaking of no one having a good time, it's the Superhuman Registration Podcast. <laughs> hey, oh, wait a minute. Was that a cell phone? I don't like being included in that cell phone. Although, I thought you said, was that a cell although, phone? I was like, yes, we're all, we're all, we're all using, using cell our cell phones, phones yes. Although, Yes. Call me on my cell phone. Were you also sent back in time? <laughs> I wish I was sent back in time before I read this. <laughs> Do you have some comic oh, creators you'd want to punch in the head? Uh, no, because they're successful. And they, they've done what I couldn't, so they still have earned my respect. Hey, there's some successful people uh, outside the comics industry that I want to punch in the head. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I have a list. Wait, how many people that how many people that you want to cause harm to do you have to have before it stops being a list and becomes a manifesto? I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> oh dear. Oh dear. So anyway, we read some comics that I think are pretty interesting, but we'll see what the group has to say about them. Uh before you got we get a manifesto in- your own future, John. <laughs> <laughs> before we get into that, John, Aldo, you guys doing okay? No! <laughs> Since you asked. Do you, do you know what I realized? I was, I, uh, no, I'm not going to talk about it. It's just everything's bad. Uh, you, you know why I'm not excited? I'm not in a good mood. Uh, it's because as, as of recording, tomorrow is going to be May 4th, with me, which means we're going to get the same dumb tired, repeated, unoriginal jokes about Star Wars that we get every year that we have for the last 10 to 20 years. People are going to send me pictures of Spock, and I'm going to curse at them, and there's going to be fallings out. That's what's going to happen. It's like, this is how the new holidays are going to be created. It's going to be May the 4th, whatever that date is from Miss Congeniality. April 25th, it's my anniversary. People always post that stupid quote, and I'm like, yep, that's the day we picked to get married, and it actually is true. The weather is lovely. There's, there's that one. There's the... The Mean Girls one. October 3rd is Mean Girls. Yeah. I think. He asked me what date it was. It's October 3rd. Yeah. Okay, but that's wrong. Like, that's not the day that... That's not the reason that they should be remembered. That should be remembered because that's the day that the brothers burned down the house in full Metal Alchemist. Heck yes. Huh. Never forget. It's but then in, again, it's in the clock. <laughs> it's the same thing. It's the pop culture holiday. Well, what are, what other dates? November fifteenth, nineteen fifty-five. Is that when Marty goes back in time? When they discover mm-hmm. time travel, the flux flux capacitor. What else? Uh, when when's Judgment Day in Terminator? Wasn't it in two thousand something? Something like, like nineteen ninety-six. Oh, yeah, we've we're past it. Nah. <laughs> Have you seen the deep fake from the movie Step Brothers with Schwarzenegger and Stallone? Not, not the whole. <laughs> and they redub them, and it's just the most perfect video. Oh my gosh. Nah, I need to find what, ty- what day the movie is. 
What is the date? No, Google knows. When is Judgment um, Day? John Connor! <laughs> I feel like we're not going to be able to move on until uh, John gets July 25th, 2003. Wait, no, that is that is in uh, Rise of the Machines. Terminator 2. This, I mean, of all, like... Nah, all this tells me is that it's going to be on TV soon, HBO. Well, okay, so where do we want to start with our, our discussion tonight? August 29th! <laughs> the, day, the day after John's birthday. I think if we want to have like an actual conversation, probably read Squirrel. We should talk talk about Squirrel Girl first, and then I'll and then I'll come back uh, <laughs> once we're done with that. <laughs> Aldo's gonna go walk around the block and just punch trees for a while. It's gonna be like the like the end credits to the Incredible Hulk TV show. <laughs> <laughs> Aldo, where are you going? Don't you have a podcast tonight? <laughs> Don't worry about it. And you just like pull up your hoodie, walk into an alley. So I think let's go ahead then and start with uh, The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, Volume 2, Numbers 1 through 5. Boy. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, this series was... It's really frustrating to talk about it just from a a publishing standpoint. I I know we've talked about this, but there were two Squirrel Girl... There were two issues of The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, Number 1, in 2015. The series started, ran for about six issues, and then Secret Wars happened and they rebooted the entire line. And so we had a second number one. And that's a, that's a joke that gets called out here. Uh, anyway, this is really kind of two stories. Issue number one is basically a standalone story that kind of resets the status quo and shows us what Squirrel Girl's whole deal is. Let's go ahead and, and go over the creative team real fast. Uh, The story was written by Ryan North with art by Erica Henderson uh, with some additional supplemental art by Joe Morris and Rico Renzi. Letters by Clayton Cowles from Virtual Calligraphy. The the story begins with Squirrel Girl at college. She's studying computer science. She has some friends who are also superheroes. uh, Chipmunk, Hunk, and Koi Boy. She has a roommate named Nancy who is a completely normal person. And this story involves... Squirrel Girl taking Nancy to meet her mom. They have a good time. They come across a supervillain who is this brain in a robot suit that was programmed by Hydra. Uh, Squirrel Girl beats it up and then realizes, oh no, it's my shtick to be nice to supervillains, not mean to them. And so they wind up fixing the brain in a jar and he winds up being their friend. Glossing over that because really the bulk of the story is the rest of the issues that we read where Squirrel Girl comes face to face with Doctor Doom, really appreciating the story under like requires a little bit of understanding of the introduction of Squirrel Girl, which was in an Iron Man comic when Iron Man faced Doctor Doom. Squirrel Girl showed up and kind of asked to be Iron Man's sidekick, and using her powers to summon squirrels, she overwhelmed Doctor Doom and drove him away. This story continues with the premise that that version of Doctor Doom, who lost to Squirrel Girl travels through time to try to find a way to get rid of Squirrel Girl. Meanwhile, there are these disappearances. Squirrel Girl's fellow students in the computer science program are disappearing, and it's not quite clear why many of them aren't being remembered. Then Squirrel Girl herself disappears, and nobody remembers her except for her roommate, Nancy. Nancy winds up teaming up with Doctor Doom to go back in time to rescue Squirrel Girl, Her line of reasoning to get Dr. Doom to help her with this is that Squirrel Girl is the only hero to have ever beaten Dr. Doom, 
and she has time traveled to find Doctor Doom when he is at his most vulnerable. Therefore, she's going to go and attack Doctor Doom as a baby. Doctor Doom won't stand for it. Takes Nancy back in time. They find Squirrel Girl, who has rounded up a bunch of other people who appear to have been displaced from time. They are other computer science students at the same university that Squirrel Girl goes to. However, none of them seem to know each other, and they can't quite figure out why. Doctor Doom shows up and attacks, and there's this whole, like, sort of sequence where Squirrel Girl has to keep the students safe while fending off Doctor Doom. She loses the fight, and it's very frustrating. So they have another showdown with Doctor Doom in Central Park, and in the middle of this showdown, another Squirrel Girl shows up. This one, however, is an elderly Squirrel Girl. It's the Squirrel Girl who lost to Doctor Doom and lived up to the present time, and then time traveled back to this moment to help Squirrel Girl beat Doctor Doom. And this ends in this sort of, like, weird farcical moment where Squirrel Girl keeps zapping herself back in time, hiding until this big confrontation with Doctor Doom, and then showing up again to get zapped back in time. So Doctor Doom gets mobbed by this horde of time-displaced Squirrel Girls, and that's what ultimately defeats him. We find out that the reason that all of these college students disappeared is because there was another computer science student who wound up with this time machine gun. He was zapping these students back in time because he all of his classes were graded on a curve, and so he was eliminating the students who were smarter than him. Where he gets the time machine is revealed in a blurb on the very last page of the last issue that we read. The time machine was given to him by the elderly Squirrel Girl, and she gave it to him so that he would zap Squirrel Girl back to the past so that it would maintain the continuity of the timeline or whatever. I'm being kind of dry with my delivery. Overall, though, I think this story is a hoot. I quite like Squirrel Girl. I think that it is fun to have a comic that doesn't take itself super seriously. And Doctor Doom, arguably my favorite supervillain, I love, like, I love how self-serious he is in this and how that becomes the joke. There's a lot of stuff about this I really like. I've got more opinions that we can get into. What do you all think? I, I enjoyed it. It kind of bugged me because it, it, it felt like it was right up against the fourth wall and sometimes broke the fourth wall and it kind of knew how funny it was. Didn't care for the alt comics, like the alt text at the bottom of every single page because it felt like it, like it bugged me. It was like this little, you know, when you have a notification on your phone and you can't, like it distracts you and you have to see what it is or, you know, that blinking light on the VCR back in the day, if you're a thousand years old like me, those little <laughs> annoying things, like that's kind of what the alt text at the bottom felt like to me. It's like, this is a printed comic book. Let's not do this webcomic thing. If you know, if you want something funny, mm -hmm. put it on the page or publish it separately and be like, hey, here's a, here's what I was thinking as the writer. <laughs> here's what I was thinking as the writer. <laughs> um, that having said, Squirrel Girl is just delightful. I love how she always has a little buck tooth uh, look to her. Mm -hmm. I thought the art, the art was fun, you know. I think it fit tonally with what was going on, and uh, colors were nicely done. Is it the very best we've read? No. Is it the worst? Not at all. I think it was um, entertaining, and, you know, um, I think the math works out. If you have enough squirrel girls who, you know, she has super strength and agility and stuff, like, you've had enough of them, yeah, she could take on an early version of Doctor Doom, who's, you know, not figured out everything yet. Yeah, and again, like, the whole gimmick of Squirrel Girl is that she beats she wins fights that she shouldn't be able to win she's a joke character mm -hmm. and so like the whole thing works for me i think not that i don't have have nitpicks or grievances but yeah i'll go ahead yeah are you back from your walk around the block <laughs> <laughs> yeah just just kicking cars <laughs> just, just kicking tires 
<laughs> I just pictured Aldo like walking down the street with the the sad peanuts music playing. Where's all this mist coming from? Oh, Aldo's <laughs> mad about the squirrel girl again. Oh, <laughs> I just I just don't like this. I I don't think it's funny. It's to me, it uh, Ryan North's sense of humor to me is not a sense of humor. It's uh, I don't know. It's kind of a slog for me to, to read. I'm not a f- big fan. The art is fine. I like the art again. Again, not my style. I especially don't like the way the faces look. I, I don't know. Like, I have a lot of complaints, but I also realize that a lot of these complaints are just like personal preferences. Like, and, and I totally get that this book isn't for me. Uh, my favorite part of this book is actually all of the letters of people talking about how much they love the book, and especially all the little children cosplaying as Squirrel Girl. Like, that's oh adorable. man, that was delightful. Squirrel Girl cosplays are some of my favorite cosplays. They are fun. That's the people that this book is written for. It is not written for me. I'm glad that you can accept that, although. I don't know. I just, I would not pick this up. Personally, I would not pick this up. But if, I don't know, somebody had kids and they were like, we want a book for our our little girl to read. I'd be like, hey, yo, squirrel girl. (laughs) Because Watchmen is out of print right now. No. (laughs) (laughs) Long long Halloween may be a little above her reading level. (laughs) If you've seen The Godfather, you already have, uh, you know, read Along Halloween, but. <laughs> but yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, so so there's things, again, Rhinor's sense of humor, I, I don't get it. It doesn't mesh with me for whatever reason. Like, the whole Doom thing being like, Doom this, Doom that, like, that felt like a joke that went on too long. And for me, the point where, like, I actively was rolling my eyes was when, like, they show that he wrote his own programming language, which is just variations of the word Doom. At that point, it's like, you've taken the joke a little, like, a little too, too down. Like, you've committed to the joke a little too much, and it stopped being funny a little while ago, and it's not funny now. Did it ever come around to being funny again, like a Family Guy joke? Yeah, that's exactly what no. I was going to say. <laughs> like, it came, it, for me, it came around to be being funny again when, uh, hold on, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to bring up the issue. It was so dumb. <laughs> That's what I kept saying, but not with the laughter. <laughs> no, I don't, I just... Oh, must be issue mm-hmm. four. Sorry. I will go back. Elderly squirrel girl, um, I, I am here for her. That was delightful. I love the uh, high five moment where she they high five each other because they're still the same person. So squirrel girl is eternal and unchanging. Um, I liked seeing the uh, alt covers. In the back, too, because there were some interesting takes on the character. I liked when he pulls out his Doom phone on Doompedia and lists a famous man. <laughs> Landmarks included Mount Doom War, Eiffel Tower of Doom, Doom Henge, Great Doom of China, Statue of Doom Birdie. <laughs> they didn't even try. They didn't even try with that one. It's just Statue of Doom Birdie. <laughs> and the Sydney's Doom House featuring opera. So that was <laughs> that made me laugh. I, I know, I, I don't know, maybe it came back around for me and it didn't work for Aldo. Well, we know it didn't work mm-hmm. for Aldo, but. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there, there's parts, there's, I mean, there's parts of the story I found, like, interesting. Like, at least in concept, it's like, yeah, I would have approved this book as well. <laughs> Which is, like, a lot of the stuff with the time travel. I really liked how it was a bunch of people, you know, thrown back in time and them eventually meeting and they have their future people anonymous meeting which is like pretty funny and how like some of them are you know the girl had the earbuds and so like that's that's how she recognized that she was from the future she's been walking around with earbuds to like try to get people's attention yeah yeah exactly so there's a bunch of like things like that that i that i do like that i think are are good or neat and stuff like that but just the humor and this is a comedic book so there's a lot of jokes and there's a lot of like uh, every other page is 
or, you know, every significant chunk of the book here is a joke, stretch of jokes, whatever, right? Like, we get serious moments, we get some pathos, we get a little bit of that stuff, but most of the book is comedy, and when the comedy just doesn't mash, mesh with you, it's like, it's hard to read. <laughs> I'm reminded of Lindsay Ellis, the, the former video essay queen of YouTube who has abandoned her throne for reasons that we will not get into today. She has probably her best video essay is titled Mel Brooks and the Ethics of Satire. I've watched that thing easily a dozen times. Um, she makes a point in there about Mel Brooks that he his comedic style is basically throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. If you don't like a joke, you don't have long to wait for another one because the next joke that comes along might be more to your taste. Mm-hmm. I feel yeah. like that's what Ryan North does. And the disadvantage here, I'm, I'm throwing Aldo a bone, um, is that <laughs> this is a book. Movies, the pace is controlled by the director, you know. But in a comic, you control the pace. And if you don't like a joke, well on it, and it will continue to bug you. And if you don't like <laughs> the next joke, the pace, like, it, it doesn't move in the same way that a movie does. You set the pace. It is your responsibility to keep yourself engaged if the book is not grabbing you. And if the book is not grabbing you, why would you keep yourself engaged? I I, I found myself actually getting kind of tired of the humor in this one. Yeah. I think the story is fantastic. I I love the story. I love the conclusion where the the squirrel girls keep time looping themselves in so there are more and more of them engaged in this yeah. fight with Doctor Doom. And you get that that really great panel at the very end where he's like confound these girls it's a recreation of the panel from the original uh steve ditko comic what is it what is it confound these wretched girls for every one i fling away a dozen more vex me it's really (laughs) funny it is really funny and there are a lot of great jokes in there i especially Mm -hmm. liked the i think it was nancy's plan to solve the problem of Victor Von Doom by taking away his copy of Baby's First Guide to World Domination and replace it with the joy of listening quietly and compromising when appropriate. Every joke is like that. Every joke is like that. It is exhausting. Yeah. I I was going to say that that is something... The first volume that we read didn't feel as exhausting. And I feel like, at least for me, that one had maybe more more hits than misses and this one felt like a little exhausting because it felt kind of relentless on the comedy it felt like we barely got any breaks from it right like it felt like oh no we're all like time displaced and like hey we made we met each other and we have this little group right like that's enough of a joke and then it's like boom immediately like uh doom shows up and we start getting the uh you know she goes away to change into squirrel girl and then immediately we're like oh hey you know this is the doom but this is the doom that you beat right after you beat blah 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 right and it feels like it immediately starts going mm-hmm. pacing and how it handles that comedy feels a little weird to me like the, the most i could say is like stretch it out one more issue like <laughs> i don't know yeah that's uh, something i haven't really thought about how that you, you know you can be as funny as you want but you do need to give time to jokes to breathe like they do that in movies sometimes they have to add a little bit of a pause because they notice in test screenings a certain joke like you miss lines you miss the next line of dialogue mm-hmm. because the audience always you know laughs at this one particular joke it really lands with all audiences so even even like a like comedian like stand-up right yeah you can't rehearse a full two-hour set because you have to make time for for laughter yeah 
and even with like comedians not every line that comes out is is a joke there's storytelling there's building up and there's you know you have to set up a lot of stuff and it feels like this one is just constantly constantly doing jokes and i, I don't know i don't know how to improve it because i'm not a comedian or a writer <laughs> all i can really say is uh you know it doesn't mesh for me and especially the humor the humor really feels like at odds with whatever my humor sensibilities are if any i guess but uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I think the thing that's interesting to me is because a lot of these books... And, you know, we tend to, like... I don't want to say we dogpile on John because I don't think we try to bully him. Not on purpose. It just happens because he's wrong all the time. <laughs> it's okay. It happens and... Yeah. <laughs> but, like, I it's every time we read Squirrel Girl, which is now two times... <laughs> I, no, it's three. This is the third one because we read a special. Every, yeah, every time we read one of these, I'm just like, is this how John feels every time he reads r- Red, White, and Black? <laughs> no, because <laughs> this isn't like I'm not like go- running out to buy Squirrel Girl merch or whatever, you know. Like, this is fine. And it did become kind of exhausting where it was like, we need. We need the the straight man in the in the bit to do their job. We need something Nobody's real for this. Nobody's a straight man in this. Nobody's a straight mm-hmm. man. Everyone kind of huh mm-hmm. at Squirrel Girl all the time because she's always on and and like that's funny. That's great, but like you you gotta have somebody else. You gotta have you know someone for them to work. Bill Murray had Harold Ramis. You know you need to have somebody for the the you know funny character to to butt up against and you know yeah Squirrel Girl has another jokester she talks to her little squirrel on her shoulder and she's weird to everybody and like that's fine if you do give us moments to breathe and kind of go okay what is going on because right now she's just been you know chittering away pun intended for three pages but she's also in the 60s and how she's gonna get how she's gonna get out of this and you know doom is involved i love that doom got involved i love that nancy like you know figured it out and and you know got the like note from the past kind of thing like their buds so they they you know were able to think think things through and, and figure out what the other one would do in this situation you know that's great but yeah we need time to breathe it you can't do that in a book like in a stand-up special or something where the comedian can really ride the wave of like you know hitting you with the punchline but then adding a tag and then adding a tag so the wave of laughter crashes and crashes repeatedly and then it's even funnier because they keep dogpiling jokes on you can't do that in a book there's got to be like you know something to break it up you know or i would say like if you you i think you can do the like the the crashing waves of jokes but not if it's been relentless jokes the whole ride like that's the climax right and I also think this has got me uh, thinking about, like, not just the pacing of the book, but also, like, the nature of the jokes. Like, this story is very self-aware. It's very tongue-in-cheek. It's the everybody knows the tropes of the story that they are in, and they are all constantly commenting on it. Mm-hmm. And I think that particular mode of comedy is, is part of why it gets so tiring. Especially considering Squirrel Girl's kind of shtick of being the hero who wins fights with villains by kind of understanding them. She becomes friends with the villains. She's friends with Kraven the Hunter. She's friends with Galactus. She's not friends with Doctor Doom, but that's kind of what makes the story so interesting is it's kind of that break. But that sort of, like, really unironic power of friendship makes the sort of, like, winking acknowledgments that Nancy remembered Squirrel Girl because of the power of friendship like read less sincerely 
Yeah. And I, I feel like that's jarring. I don't think it sinks the story at all, but I do think it, it creates a barrier where there doesn't need to be one. Yeah, because I do like the story, at least in concept. I really enjoy the whole time traveling bit, especially at the end, like you mentioned, where she keeps going back to the past and essentially creating a bunch of time displaced clones, right? Like, that was really funny. And I'm pretty sure I've seen that somewhere else, and I'm sure it was in a cartoon. But, like, I mean, it's it's a good joke. Seems very cartoony. Uh, the Matrix... The second Matrix movie, yep. All the Smiths. The terrible CG. That's what you're thinking of, yeah, isn't it, Aldo? Not time, no, no, they're not time displaced. John, <laughs> I haven't even seen The Matrix 2. <laughs> <laughs> it's so bad. It like It's this normal scene, you know, and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, turn on the CG, everybody, and it's like bad video game. It's just, they thought they could do it, and it, it's you just... Freaking uncanny valley. Anyway. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, that is also all of the Star Wars prequel trilogy. They yeah. thought they could. But yeah, it, yeah, it's uh, it's just one of those things where, like, I could enjoy the story if, like, one, I had a similar taste in jokes. But two, if maybe there were less of them, I think I could appreciate the story a little bit more. As it is now, I kind of felt exhausted coming out of the book and not having a very good time. When I could have had some... I got to the, got to the point where there was a joke about you know, stealing raptors from the past to attack Doom. And I think any other day of the week, I would have found that hilarious. But not today. Or the day I read it, I guess, technically. But yeah. Did we all read it today? <laughs> Cards on the table? <laughs> this one I read yesterday. Okay. Yeah, same, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> because it was the longer of the two. <laughs> okay. I foolish. Yeah, this was the one I read today. I read the other one yesterday. Oh. Yeah. The other one The other one is one I'm summarizing, so I wanted to make sure that I had it all like clear. Yeah. Ugh. To be fair, though, by personal, you know, taste, preference, or, you know, experience, both of these books felt equally long. <laughs> yeah. Five <laughs> issues against three, but it's not, it's like, <laughs> oh, it's, but it's Canadian dollars. It's, you know, dog ears. It's, you know. Yeah, exactly. It's different, but, oh boy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, and I, I, I specific, okay, one of my favorite things about this book, because I do have things I liked. I know I came off real aggressively negative about this book, but I, there are things i enjoyed about it and one of them that i do like is that this is specifically doom right after he was beaten by squirrel girl the first time like the fact that it's that doom a very specific type of thing to me is hilarious i don't know why but just the idea that like it could have been any doom from any point in his life but no it was that one mm-hmm. and i don't know why to me i think that's that's fun you know what i i'm gonna take a stab at it or at least why i think this choice was made because it is ridiculous. But it's mm-hmm. ridiculous in a way that is absolutely believable for a character like Doctor Doom. Oh yeah, it's you in character. The code. <laughs> he is the he's kind of like the stereotypical if you're a TV tropes reader, if you're familiar with things like the Xanatos Gamblet. <laughs> Rogue Logan Gamblet. Those are my favorite. The Xanatos Gamblet. Wasn't he on the 93 X-Men? They took out Remy LeBeau and they put in Gamblet and they thought no one would notice. <laughs> it's just Gambit, but with a gambling problem. <laughs> what are you going to do with all that money, Cheryl? Gamblet. <laughs> I'm sorry. So if you're familiar with like TV tropes and the concept of the Xanatos Gambit, Xanatos was the villain in Gargoyles. And it was kind of a trope that in 
gargoyles whenever he was defeated. He would say, well, it wasn't a total defeat because I was able to test my weaponry and it went toe-to-toe with the strongest warrior. Like, he would he'd turn every defeat into a victory. Doom does that. And Squirrel Girl, his encounter with Squirrel Girl was the first time canonically that he was defeated. Like, unequivocally beaten by a hero. And the joke being like, Doom wouldn't accept that. How would he handle it? Oh, he would try to make it so it didn't happen. And he would do it right away. It is absolutely 100% in character for Doctor Doom to have done this. For his pride to not have let him suffer a defeat. That he would bend the very laws of nature to try to make it so that never happened. And the fact that he looks ridiculous along the way, I mean, makes it the perfect sort of villain for a comedy comic. Because he's so serious. Maybe he's the straight man, but he's not there the whole time. He's not the straight man either because he's he's the unintentional joke. He's, yeah. He's yeah. over the top and so sincere about it that, he, yeah. Everyone is always on all the time. Yeah, and I do think, for me at least, the only real, like, I don't know, the only moment where, like, it didn't feel like a joke until it was a joke was when he's having his confrontation with Squirrel Girl after they find his hideout. And, like, it's when he's giving her the tour, right? Showing the, the Doom bots and the Doom code and all that stuff. And he talks about compromising. And she's like, you have to learn to compromise. He's like, no. Do you not understand, like, how much you can accomplish when you don't compromise on anything? And I was like, ooh, ooh, I like this. This feels a little, like, philosophical, but also a little funny. It was actually an ideological conflict for Squirrel Girl. So it was, like, really good. And then, like, you know, again, like every joke in here just kind of kept on going for a little bit. I was like, you had me for a moment there, Ryan North. Like, you almost had me. (laughs) It's like that Bo Burnham song about the internet. Can I interest you in everything all of the time? (laughs) Yeah. One of these days, I'll read a Ryan North book that I enjoy. I do highly recommend Dr. McNinja if you haven't read it. It is pretty good. That's not Ryan North. Shoot, that's Christopher Hastings. Christopher Hastings, correct. They are very similar. I like dinosaur comics. That's Ryan North. I haven't read enough to say that, like, I'm all in, but what I've read is, you know, it's fun. It's not an all-in thing. It's a, I could use a <laughs> chuckle. Oh, hey, dinosaur comics. I'll read one. <laughs> That's nice. But it's also a six-panel comic, and I think there's something to kind of being limited to that space. You said I enjoy dinosaur comics. I didn't pick up that that was the name of the book. I just thought you meant as a genre. <laughs> <laughs> Western, superhero, <laughs> manga, and then, oh, dinosaur. Apparently, he did a comic book adaptation of Kurt Vonnegut's Vonnegut, uh, Slaughterhouse-Five. Really? What? Interesting. I like Wait, Slaughter have I read Slaughterhouse-Five? I haven't read Slaughterhouse-Five. I've not. I've read Cat's Cradle. I haven't read Cat's Cradle. Oh, Steven, we're opposite Kurt Vonnegut twins. Aww. Aww. <laughs> you're, not, you're not twins, then, if you're opposite. Sure we are. Oh, he's my evil twin. Wait, I'm the one with the beard. <laughs> yeah, see, you have the beard. You're the evil one. Other than that, we look exactly the same. I have not read read Cat's Cradle, but yeah, Slaughterhouse Five is good, and Kurt Vonnegut is a Hoosier, so so there. Cat's Cradle is also good. Mm-hmm. I haven't read a single Kurt Vonnegut. I'm lost. You you brought <laughs> you you brought him up, and you had okay. You brought him up, and you haven't read him. I bring up a lot of things I have no knowledge in. <laughs> <I see. laughs> Well, I like him. <laughs> this is the day for Stephen to remember pop culture references from other things. It reminds me of that joke from Adventure Time where he fights a cat who, like, Finn the Human fights a cat who calls him Frank the Human Boy. And Finn says, oh, how did you almost know my name? And the cat says, I have approximate knowledge of many things. Yeah. <laughs>
Also, my favorite, one of my favorite jokes still to this day from Adventure Time is like from the first like five episodes, which is when they find the giant he thinks that what that he stomped or killed Jake. So he <laughs> steals his dollar bill and uses that to fly away. And for some reason that is never not funny to me. And the giant like shakes his fist at it and says, you're under arrest for stealing my dollar. Yeah. <laughs> Here, here's a hot take. Adventure Time never gets better than season one. I don't know because I haven't seen past like season two or three. I have seen through season five. I think parts of season six, the fact that I haven't finished Adventure Time yet actually kind of hurts me because I think the story gets really good. But the overall quality never, like season one is the most consistent from top to bottom and it never gets that good again. I've never seen Adventure Oh, you, I think you absolutely should. I think it has a bunch of like really goofy humor and stuff. Actually, what I was about to say, and maybe this will convince you to check out Adventure Time, <laughs> is Ryan North's humor kind of reminds me a lot of Adventure Time. Where it's kind of a lot of oddities, a lot of stuff that like that makes sense when you think about it from a kid's point of view, and there's just like a lot of that type of things. Except Adventure Time has a lot of a lot of kind of downtime in between jokes. Not like it's bad, but like it it works at creating a really interesting pathos that you really feel for this human boy and his dog, and like it's really interesting. I really like John DiMaggio, so you know. Yeah, I think at the bare minimum, Adventure Time is absolutely worth. Like, at least a single checkout. At least of the first season. I think there's some really... There's some really great stuff in there. Again, I think my favorite thing about the humor in there is how much of it just feels like it's rooted in childlike logic. Uh-huh. Like, was it the episode where they're going through a dungeon? Or... No, no, it's the one where they're getting that book. I forgot the name of the, the book. The book. Yeah, the Enchiridion. Yeah, he just goes up and he... Like, there's a def- uh, well, protector of the Enchiridion or something. And <laughs> Fate just runs up to him and just... Kicks him in the groin. <laughs> that actually, it's it's season one episode. I don't remember which episode it is. I want to say it's in episode five. But the Enchiridion, that is the episode like that I recommend. If you want to watch Adventure Time, you should watch this episode. It is the best episode of the show. And if you like it, you will find enough good in other episodes that you'll probably want to keep watching. Seems like I should save that one then. That is that is really odd that like Aldo brings up a groin kick and you know exactly the episode and when it takes place. Do you <laughs> have an approximate is knowledge? The best episode of the show and it is the best entry point to the show, which is part of the reason it's the best episode. I'm gonna save it. I'll just go to episode one and work up to episode five then. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. But promise me in that case you won't give up until you get to episode five. <laughs> yeah. All right. No, it's, I've seen moments of it where Babish makes food from it. So, like... Bacon pancakes, making bacon pancakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, there's, every now and again a cartoon makes an appearance on Binging with Babish and it's really delightful. I've been saying lots of things are delightful. Maybe it's because things are not really delightful right now, so... The Enchiridion episode has the best lines in the show, including the sincere line where Jake tells Finn that sucking, sucking at something is the first step to becoming sort of good at something, and the absolutely hilarious line where an evil pixie, voiced by, I believe it's Mark Hamill, says, every time you look sad, we're going to destroy an old lady, <laughs> and then he destroys an old lady. <laughs> I love that. He just keeps doing it. He just keeps getting sadder. They keep killing old ladies. <laughs> Destroying old ladies. Anyways. Uh, do we have anything else to say about Squirrel Girl? <laughs> no, no, just that I feel just that I feel Ryan North is, is so close to 
getting that Adventure Time humor. And one day, maybe it'll be Squirrel Girl, or maybe it'll be something else I read. I will like Ryan North. I, j- I feel like I'm on the precipice of liking him. Maybe he'll do a Spidey one-shot where he's already, like, you're already in for Spidey and that'll carry you over and he'll have, you know, matured to the point where he can meet your approval, Aldo. There's a Squirrel Girl audio drama podcast that, like, is coming out right now. Yeah. I wonder if that might be, like, because, again, the pacing's different there, right? Yeah, maybe. Maybe it'd work better like that. I don't know. I haven't read it or I haven't listened to it, so maybe. Also, <laughs> sorry to bring it up yet again. Ryan North was the writer for the Adventure Time comic books from 2012 to 2014. He was! There's the connection, okay. I forgot about that. He was. Mm-hmm. Oh, but apparently North... Uh, Galaga... Oh, Galaga was the was the book that he wrote, Christopher Hastings. Not okay. Ah, oh, they collaborated. Uh, never mind. That makes my gap a little bit earlier much more... Yeah, I think uh, they they yeah have collaborated before. I think um, they, Ryan did a guest comic for Doctor McNinja. Maybe he used to do guest comics. I actually forgot that Adventure Time comic is not bad, but it has the same gimmick. It has the text at the bottom of the page, um, which I found charming when we read the first Squirrel Girl comic. But right now, I think I'm with you guys. I in fact probably skipped most of those alt texts. And some of them were very awesome. funny, but it was also like, hey, th- this is not how we do it. You know, in this format, so it's it's a, it's kind of like put the joke in the comic, sir. Uh huh. This is not what I mean. <laughs> so. Uh huh. Yeah, it was a hat on a hat. So yeah, there's there's one point where like Doom brings up the some concept, some philosophical concept about needs or whatever, right? And oh oh, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He brings that up, and then, like, you have the explanation, which I should have known it's a gag. But I feel like it, it doesn't do a good enough job at explaining the concept, because it makes it it makes explaining the concept into a joke, which, if you didn't get the first joke, the second joke <laughs> does not help me, does not help the first joke be funny. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> I will say, one of the little vis- visual gag um, was... When she's spying on Doctor Doom, she's dressed up like the cartoon character's secret squirrel. And that was pretty good. That was pretty I missed good. that. I missed that. That's pretty good. So it is on um, in issue four on uh, page 10. But she's got the purple hat and the trench coat. Yeah, I, I, I know what the character looks like. and But yeah, I missed that. Actually, no, I should say I appreciate you describing the visual for our audio uh, entertainment podcast. I'm trying to do my bit. You did, you did, and I shut you down. I'm sorry. My days of improv should have allowed me to yes and better than that. You should have. You should have yes and. Yes. Yes and. Uh, I don't have anything else to add. After I think I, it's, I think we are said, we are good and ready to move on to the X Men comic. We've been flapping our gums too much about all this, fellas, and uh, wow, we do we have a uh, classic comic to read right now. Let's. Uh, you guys can give your jaws a rest, and I'm gonna read. Uh, what we read, or go over what we read uh, next, we went all the way back to the first X-Men run. The original pairing, Stan and Jack. Back, the Uncanny X-Men from 1963, maybe? Now i got to go back and see the exact dates. But we read Uncanny X-Men, 14, 15, and 16. This is the first appearance of the Sentinels, which I thought for a podcast going over... Um, comic books and and history and everything would be good to have under our belt and i've been wrong many times on this show (laughs) 
this came out November 1st, 1965, December 1st, 1965, and January 1st, 1966. Once again, I am reminded that I don't think Stan Lee knows how to write for teenagers or write teenage dialogue. I don't... I made a list of all the different uh, things, and uh, Groovy was the only one I expected and got, and the rest of them was like, oh, this is this is weird. I don't know what natch means. Naturally, no one talks like that, Stan. Anyway, we start off the, um, there were, had been two issues before this where they fought the Juggernaut, and um, kind of wish we had read those, because I flipped through them, and I was like, okay, the pacing of this is pretty good. Sentinels, we, we, are getting we get a training montage where they're in the danger room and everyone has a specific like training to try to like recover from this big fight they've had with uh, juggernaut then they're all gonna go off on on uh, vacation and uh, they all like put on suits like they're they're supposed to be teenagers they're wearing suits uh, they uh, all leave the mansion and then um bolivar trask goes on tv and says there are mutants among us and then professor xavier is like oh no i gotta get on there and debate him and he uses his powers to you know get on tv which you know i think morally is yeah whatever <laughs> it's like, also <laughs> sorry the way you said that though you said like he's like there's mutants among us at charles xavier mm, trask that's pretty sus yeah <laughs> yeah I love how he's like, I have to debate him like he's Ben Shapiro or something. Yeah. I I, I hate myself for making that joke. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, you know, ah, who's this guy? Some kind of, no kid of mine's a mutie. Yeah, the the crowd's dialogue is great. Like, uh, who is this egghead, this bald, this this egg-headed old stuffed shirt? I think mutants are groovy. Anyway. In the middle of this debate, the Sentinels show up, and the Sentinels are designed to protect humanity from mutants. Bolivar Trask just says, "Well, what? It, let's just say Professor Xavier here is a uh, mutant." <laughs> and then Professor X is like, "Crap!" Um, Sentinels, the AI robots, immediately go bad. Who could have suspected that? So they immediately go bad. They take Bolivar Trask away because they need him to make more Sentinels. Professor Xavier sends out. A call to, like, to me, my X-Men, you know, calls all of them. They all um, meet up. They have some run-ins with uh, a Sentinel that's still at the station. And uh, they go to the uh, Sentinel's base. The Sentinel's base, um, this, uh, this popped up in another, like, a Spider-Man comic. But, like, stuff came up out of the ground and shoots at him. And they kind of regroup. And they're trying to figure out how to get in. And Bobby and... Uh, and uh, Hank get in but get captured, and then the rest go in and get captured. And so Professor Xavier, really kind of bending the the you know rules on his powers, he can astrally project himself, and he he can affect the mind of a robot. You know he he connects enough to like you know shut down some of the robots. He gets in there, but then the master mold, the boss sentinel, the 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 main leader sentinel detects him and shuts him out and shoots him away with electromagnetic rays. So he barely makes it back to his own body, uh, uses his powers to summon some people and figures out that there was something blocking the signal. Um, that's why the sentinel that was at the TV studio shut down during a fight. So he brings this big crystal that's just conveniently out in the city to the Sentinel's base, shuts them all down. Bolivar Trask sacrifices himself to undo his horrible invention that he realizes throughout the comics with some of the best art is his just pained expressions, just, oh, what have I done? And I I can't put my finger on which actor at the time he's, he's trying to be, maybe Chris, uh, Vincent Price. 
it's somewhere in the Christopher Lee, Vincent Price area, but I can't figure out exactly who. The Lee Price continuum, as it were. There you go. So he <laughs> destroys the Sentinels, destroys Master Mold, and, and then we leave like, oh, but something else is coming. And then we, in the next issue, we get Magneto. So, And it's uh, Men Call Me Magneto. He uses that line so that, uh, you know, Thanksgiving comic, it's not just, it's like apparently how he introduces himself. And that's not just a weird one thing he said at Thanksgiving one time. I thought that um, Jack Kirby's art was good. It's It does feel like an older comic, uh, but the colors are, are bright. You know, and he has good poses in here, some good expressions. You know, the action's fun. The sound effects are stupid. Oh, I love the sound effects. <laughs> zit, 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 zit. Uh, thwack. Uh, yeah, there's some... I seriously, that's one of my favorite panels. Not a joke. <laughs> when it works, it's great. Um, it's distracting because of the amount of time that's gone by. The way they talk about things, like, oh, let's get him. Let's get that guy with the death-dealing eyes. It's like, no one no one talks like this, man. So as much as I love Stan Lee, you got to take this moment where it's like, nobody talks like this. Okay, but nobody actually has wings either, John. Oh, you're the worst. <laughs> you are the worst. The X-Men, like, they, they do their thing, but it, it is, like, Professor X, who like does all of the aha, if we if we give the aliens a cold, you know, yeah. Anyway, I already know what you guys are gonna say, but tell me, how did you feel about this comic? I don't think you know what I'm gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> I also agree with how much they stretched the definition of a telepath. Yeah, the fact that he was like, okay, my favorite part because uh, prior to this, I think, or maybe it would have been after. I can't remember anymore. It's all kind of blurred together. It's a big book, <laughs> but. When he convinces the cop to let him, like, look at the... Or not even convinces, when he, when he mind controls the cop. To letting him, like, look at the at the sentinel that's, you know, sitting there blocked or whatever. And, and he's just staring at it. And he's like, mm, my telepathic powers don't work on it. And the cop is like, hey, buddy, you want to, like, rethink your life or whatever? Do it somewhere else. <laughs> it's just like... Because, yeah, he's just... He's just looking at this, you know, paralyzed bald man just sitting there staring at this robot. It is good to have, like, some acknowledgement of what this would be like in real life. He's just, like, sitting there thinking. Yeah, but also I just, I really actually did not like the fact that, like, later or before, I can't remember, it's all blurred together. <laughs> but when he's like, I can help them out, they're robots, so I can't, like, control them. But I guess I can short-circuit their thoughts, maybe? Hmm? I don't know. Did we ride ourselves into a corner? Because they, these Sentinels, in the short time they've existed, I don't know how long Baller Trask, because it seems like he was like, I'm mad about mutants, and tomorrow I'll show you my robots. And they have this, yeah. like, impenetrable bubble. They can't, like, they can't get out of it. They, you know, try everything, all the, you know, the Cyclops and, and co. and gang, as it were, try to get out of it, and they can't do it. Um, Marvel Girl, like, shows a little bit more telekinesis than I've seen in other, you know, classic comics but still is the damsel in distress even though she says i'm not the damsel in distress but everything is like oh and then it's like don't worry we won't leave you behind let's get out of here and leave this girl we better scamper gang that's a dandy idea so one of the things i don't like about this book specifically about the whole charles xavier telepath stretching the definition of his powers is i one of my favorite things i love about books that have established power sets or or whatever that they have rules right like this is why i love death note because i love to see what they can do with those powers or those rules and how they can bend them right without breaking them so when you have 
like uh, when you have Cyclops with his like visor thing, right? Like we get the reveal that it actually goes up or whatever. I don't know why I I didn't figure that that was a thing until this book, and it's like, oh, I guess that makes sense, right? Because that's the visor goes up and down. No, well, I think that's probably changed too. Yeah, and mm-hmm. so the fact that they use that as like the thing that helps launch them on their little ice platform across like the field to you know infiltrate this fortress. That's really cool. That's like yeah. taking an established power, how it works. And bending it to do something else. Like, I love that stuff. And X-Men, I think maybe specifically, like, the animated shows, I thought did that pretty well, if my memory serves right, which it probably doesn't. No, I actually would agree with you, I think. And I get it, right? This is issue number 14, 15, 16. Within a year after the book was first created and these characters being released. So, like, it makes sense, right? They're still figuring out you know, for the most part, what these characters can or can't do, you know, whatever, right? They're, and they're not really beholden to any sort of character Bible that says that this is what this character does and, you know, these are the absolute limits, blah, blah, blah. So, like, I get it. But at the same time, it is, like, a little disappointing. It's probably just because of my experience with modern X-Men and comics that it kind of rubs me the wrong way, so to say. I think it's that... Maybe it's that experience with modern X-Men comics that kind of, like, helps to inform why the story isn't really doing it either. Because here's I almost like this book. There are a lot of things that this book does well. As far as, like... Because as far as, like, action goes, really, I think, quite solid depictions of action. I really like the character designs. And I also... There was one moment at the beginning. It was in the first issue that we read that got me to like sit up and really pay attention. It's like, I know this is a story about the Sentinels. The Sentinels were created by humans because they didn't like mutants and they wanted to persecute the mutants. They wanted to destroy the mutants. And you have a full page where Angel monologues about how he has to keep his wings hidden. The Beast describes how he has to wear special shoes because otherwise his feet are too uncomfortable. And Cyclops, poor Cyclops, who is so repressed and so concerned about keeping his powers under such tight control because if he doesn't, people will get hurt. Will. And it's like, this is a really good moment that builds the sympathy that we need to be feeling towards these characters that is ultimately going to be the thematic through line of this story. And nothing is really done with it. There's this amazing setup that feels like it's going to pay off. The X-Men are going to get their gear ready to go so that they can go fight the Sentinels. And somebody's going to see the Beast's like abnormal feet under his shoes. Uh, we actually do get a little bit of that. The mob does see Cyclops and they turn on him. But it doesn't ever really pay off thematically in this little story arc. And I think... Modern stories, modern X-Men stories in particular, were used to that thematic tightness. And it's not here, but it feels like it's going to be here, and so it's frustrating. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the details like that Cyclops' eyes and the way that, you know, Warren hides his wings and, and Beast has his, you know, pediatric... Uh, crap. <laughs> pediatric? What? Not pediatric, podiatric, no. There's a, what's the name for the special shoes? Whatever. Um, he's got the extra wide insoles. I like that all of them have their, I think this is something that, a little detail that sets apart the X-Men from other comic books at the time, a way that, you know, kept it going to where it, you know, really gets good. The Claremont, you know, stuff where there's the, there's a lot more to it. That, I don't want to say the, like the soap opera nature of it because that's something I don't really like about it, but that also is like part of it. And, 
you know, here at the beginning, we we do get, you know, ways that they're different. And so anyone who feels like an other can see this struggle of, you know, what do I do when I'm in public, you know, where people don't like people like me, where people are going to react poorly to people like me because I'm different. You know, there's so many groups throughout the years who, you know, have related to that. And I think that that's something that X-Men does that's special. I like the look of Sentinels in general, not so much here. Maybe it's just the colors, but it is interesting that like the elements are there. Um, I think the proportions changed enough throughout the years where you can take them a bit more seriously and they kind of just look like goobers here and <laughs> just ridiculous. You know, the kind of dark purple, lighter purple works for historic, like the Sentinels that we're used to, the red and everything. Here with the bright primary colors, I don't take them as seriously. They're only slightly larger than life they're not you know as tall as a building or whatever but it's you know th this is uh, something that keeps coming back this is one of their i think biggest villains in the the long run because you know we see like the jonathan hickman um x-men run where we see you know the many lives of moira mctaggart we see uh, one future where sentinels have taken over you know the master mold has has uh you know, eliminated, I think, all humans because they might turn out to be mutants and they can't have that. And so it's interesting to see the little nuggets of ideas that are, you know, taken to the next level um, for future iterations of the comic. Knowing kind of the publication history of the X-Men, I think you can see both why this series didn't quite land and also why later creators revisited it and it blew up. Yeah. Like, the elements are there. The configuration is not right. There's a part of me that thinks Lee and Kirby were not the right team for this, which we've talked in the past about how Lee and Kirby were very effective storytellers together, generally speaking, even though they had their, their personal disagreements and stuff. Something about the X-Men formula just doesn't work for them, though. Definitely not as well as John Byrne and Chris Claremont. I think John Byrne, like John Byrne first drawing Nightcrawler, that's like, holy crap, everybody, like, you know, sit up straight, look at this. This is amazing. Love that. You know, love those, the looks of the teams there with, like, in Giant Size X-Men number one, I think, I forget who the artist was on that. That might have been John Byrne with um, Len Wein. Now I have to look it up. But that's kind of where it changed from you know, this version of the X-Men to closer in line with, you know, what we're all more familiar with. Dave Cockrum. That That's was, right, yeah, Dave Cockrum. Dave Cockrum. I was like, I knew it wasn't John Byrne, but like, very good too, you know. But that, I think Giant Size X-Men number one is like the big change. That was 75, so. And that was, you know, the team gets expanded to include, you know, they were going after, trying to find countries where their books were popular and make characters from those countries to make them even more popular. And they, I don't, I don't think they actually matched up, you know, like, you know, I don't know how big X-Men was in Russia before Colossus came along, but they kind of decided what kind of characters they wanted to add and added those and forgot about, you know, trying to market it towards specific countries. But anyway, um, yeah, I, you know, the seeds are there, there's something there, and I'm, I'm glad that people picked it up later and were able to run with it. Yep. Um, yeah, almost liked it, kind of disappointed, but... It is what it is. I actually, I want to say, I was about to say, I actually really liked it. But then I remembered, I skimmed through half the book. So <laughs> maybe that's not an accurate <laughs> assessment of the, my enjoyment. The Cliff of the Notes book. is not bad. <laughs> 
I will say also the the Marvel Girl stuff is pretty good. Like she does not get the best treatment in these stories, generally speaking. And yeah, for her to actually show some real muscle, she pulls Warren out of the mm-hmm. air to save him from getting swarmed by the Sentinels. Like there's some decent stuff that happens with her in here. So, for reasons that are pretty obvious if you follow comics news, I was actually reading an interview. It was published on a website uh, called Tomorrow's, an interview conducted by Arlen Schumer with Neil Adams. Adams talked about working with Stan Lee, and he mentions that he thinks Stan's personality is very melodramatic. I'm quoting here. Even when Stan spoke, it was quite melodramatic. Every book that Stan did was melodramatic. But there are times in comic books that you don't want to be melodramatic. There are times when you want to be scientific. There are times you want to be conversational, times you want to be clever or cute or whatever it is. And I think to me, the stuff that works the best in early X-Men, weirdly, is the Gene Warren Cyclops love triangle. And it's I think it's that melodrama that does it. Um, one of the most sensational demonstrations of telekinetic prowess ever recorded. The fabulous female mutants levitates herself right out of the train window. Woo! <laughs> I mean, like... Telekinesis would be pretty cool, but it's, you know, the language of, it's like, really? She hops out of a window? She has superpowers, you know? So I actually wanted to say something about that. Not not necessarily the language used to, you know, depict and describe the situation, but there's something really quaint about going back and reading these books, right? And I want to give a super quick tangent just to give a little bit of context because I'm going through a similar thing right now with one of my favorite video games, Final Fantasy fourteen. In that the last like expansion story thing literally has your your group of heroes traveling like across the stars and the universe to the edge of reality to fight the like pre Big Bang personification of despair. And so as they're setting up like the new story, it's kind of like we're going back down to basics. Uh, but like they don't, they can't really bring it all the way back down, right? But I've been going through some of the older like story content after this. And it's so quaint because my character, canonically at this point, has gone to outer space and fought a concept. And people are like, you're you're not a true archer because you're not loyal to the king. And, you know, it's like, oh, quaint. I killed like 13 gods on my way over here. <laughs> so stuff like that I find, I don't know, like really interesting because we've, we're going back to reading, you know, literally the, the first... 20-ish books of this of the series right more than 50 years ago so the fact that like jean gray levitating herself out of the train and they're like this is the most amazing thing that's been recorded (laughs) and it's like yo she became like a psychic demon phoenix that blows up planets by like approaching them this is quaint (laughs) by those standards oh fire huh well keep at it good for you (laughs) oh she can fly oh Oh. just wait till you see her bring herself back yes yeah (laughs) from the ground no death (laughs) yeah yeah i think it's really interesting when we revisit these not just because you know it's quaint and it's cute how much these things have happened but also i love the perspective of how crazy x-men specifically has gotten from where it started right because we're starting and it's like these these five kids in xavier's mansion and you know they they maybe they don't even have like a jet in here right not yet and now yeah 
And now they have a whole island with, like, birthing pods and they can bring anybody back. And there's a robot and, like, Mystique is, like, a she has a lover. And if that they break up, like, everything ends. Like, <laughs> it's so bananas what X-Men has become. And getting the perspective of how it started is hilarious, even. Yeah, agreed. I, I just like the, you know... We'll eventually read X Men Second Coming. It's the third part in the like the Hope Summers kind of you know big story arcs, and and I really like that. And I know it's gonna be a time when you guys are like, John, this isn't as good as you think it is, and whatever. I'm still gonna like it, and you guys are gonna say, Oh, John, you have no nuance. Oh, John, look at you and your <laughs> kitty watercolors and your plain. You like vanilla soft serve, don't you, John? And hey. You are not going to malign vanilla ice cream in any of its wonderful varieties <laughs> in my house. I do the twist cone every time because one. Anyway. I, I was going to ask if if Second Coming was the one that's the good one. Because you keep saying, you piece of crap. Because <laughs> 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 you keep saying, no, guys, I promise this is good. It and is. then we finish the book. We finish part one. And you're like, no, no, I promise Fine. the next one is better. And then we get to the second one. And you're like, no, no, I promise the next one is actually the good one. I was misremembering. No, the, first, the second one's not very good. Messiah War is not very good. Um, there are some co- good things about it, but the art's so inconsistent. Changing, you know, artists is bad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Second coming is good. Shut your face. I want to do it this year because then we can stop talking about it and you guys can like, you know, give it, just let me have it, whatever. <laughs> but. Give it to you, baby. Uh-huh, uh-huh. The big fight in that is, you know, Sentinel. Like, it's kind of all of the X-Men's villains team up against them, but the, the ones behind the, you know, pulling the strings are the, are the Sentinels, you know, in the in the future, trying to eliminate the mutants altogether. And I really liked it. And so seeing where it started, that part was fun. Always enjoy Jack Kirby's art. I think this is better than, you know, the first couple of issues of X-Men. Now that we have Scott Summers and not Slim anymore, they've dropped Slim. And then it comes back, I guess, when Wolverine starts calling him Slim. Anyway, I... Hi, my name is... What? My name is... Who? My name is Sicka Sicka Slim Summers. Hi, my name is... <laughs> uh... <laughs> I, hate, I hate it, but I love it. <laughs> Cyclops is such a square here, and I still am always mad that he misses. Like, you're looking at it, man. It's your eyes. Anyway, I think we've talked about this long enough, and um, I'm interested to see where it falls on our rankings. Me too. Me too. Me three. <laughs> I didn't know what names were these these stories had, so I named Squirrel Girl Volume 1 again. That works. Yeah, and then I also named The Sentinels, I guess. <laughs> I guess it's called Among Us Stock the Sentinels, but that's just, I mean, that's issue 14, but I mean, that works for the arc. It's awfully sus. I hate myself again. The trade for Squirrel Girl is called uh, something like Squirrel, You Really Got Me Now, or something like that. Oh, Girl, You Got Me Now. Hey, I get it. Squirrel rhymes with Girl. You really got me gone. Sorry, now I'm bugged, so I have to look for it. <laughs> I'm just going to, you do your thing. I'm just going to start scrolling down. Currently on our list, we have 190 stories. Yeah, it's a lot. And we've got, oh goodness. So our first Squirrel Girl story is ranked fairly high, if I remember correctly. I think it's slipped since, oh yeah, Squirrel Power is number 43 on our list. Mm-hmm. 
And our highest ranking X-Men comic is, geez, what is it? Uh, the, the Dawn of X prelude. That's the House of X and Powers of X. That's number 11. So Squirrel Girl and X-Men have done pretty well. X-Men is also uh, pretty low on our list. The Draco is the second from the bottom. So yeah, where do we want to rank these stories? I will say that like neither one of them is poorly done. You know, the writing and the art is, is competent. You know, so there's not, and, and there's nothing, like, problematic. I, I'd have to reread the X-Men one again to make sure, but it seems like all the animosity is directed towards um, muties, so there's that. But I'm I'm thinking somewhere, somewhere, uh, I don't know, between 70 and 100, maybe. For Squirrel Girl? Are we starting with Squirrel Girl? We always start with the first one. Since when? This is, this Since is most... Since literally episode one. <laughs> I don't think it's that bad. <laughs> so 43 is the other Squirrel Girl, which I think Aldo will find high, right? But this one... I mean, I find it sober, too. He finds it however <laughs> it is and accepts it for what it is. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <sighs> Do you know where I want to rank this Squirrel Girl story? Where? Where is that Howard the Duck story? What the duck? What the duck? What the duck? I actually think that's about where this goes. I would put it above that because I just, I nothing Howard the Duck. I do not like him. Sam, I am. I think, oh, and it just occurred to me that part of the reason that I, I put that together is because the very next issue of Squirrel Girl is a Squirrel the squirrel Girl Howard the Duck team up. Wow, that's at 104. That's a little low for what I expected from you guys. That's fine with me. I'm willing to go up from there, but like... That's my hard floor, and I actually do think the stories are somewhat comparable. Like, I, I would be okay with arguing that it goes higher than that, but that's that's the first comparison that I want to make. I liked it more than Release the Flirkin, the Captain Marvel book we read, and that's at 102. So, bumps up there. I, listen, this is me. I would put this above Project Galassium. Galassium, the, the Shang-Chi yeah. digital comic? yeah. Below typhoid? No, no, just above, just above pro. Oh, pro, Project Jealous. Gelsimian, whatever. Sure, that's that's a. Why would you would you pick that word? <laughs> because it's written. They don't have to say it. I think that you have to. All comic book writers should have to read back the things that they're saying and then be like, you know, people don't really talk like that, or that's a tricky word to say, and have everyone read in their own, you know, head. I, I don't. I don't mind that actually. I think typhoid was a tighter story. Yeah. Stay Angry did have crazy Russian space bears. You know, that's tough to beat. <laughs> that the man slept with. Sleep with many bears. Yeah. So put it below Typhoid? Above Project Germs? Project Germs? Yeah, it was a project. <laughs> <laughs> project Benedict, Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, no. I started reading that really confidently because it didn't seem like it was going to be hard. But then it actually tried to come out of my mouth, and that was a hard word to, to pronounce. I don't like I don't like how incompetent it made me feel. <laughs> it was like the spoken equivalent of walking in quicksand. You're like Project Gelsum. <laughs> yeah. Oh no! I what do you think, Stephen? I think that's a good Pro spot. Pro Project Gelsifer. I think that's okay. It definitely 
doesn't go above that Star Wars New Hope manga, which is my hard ceiling for a lot of different stories. Mm-hmm. But so this is I don't know. I feel like there are a lot of stories in this list that I really like but are held back for one reason or another. So like it feels appropriate to me. Anyway, so let's let's go ahead and rank that X-Men story now. The the Sentinels one. Night of the Sentinels, whatever it's called. This is where I it's uh, where's the part of the list where you can't fault it, but it's also not very entertaining. Like, where's the competent but meh part of the list? Isn't that where the Thanksgiving X-Men... The mutant who came to dinner at 128. Yeah. Uh, you know? Yeah. But I would put it definitely above Mary Jane Homecoming. <laughs> Fair, I guess. Under Eternals. So my I am somewhere between 121 and 126. Somewhere in theirs. Yeah. Except I actually think I would put this above Eternals and Old Man Logan and Demon in a Bottle. I think Winter Soldier Winter Kills is my ceiling. Now, Aldo, I want to remind you that we've been friends for a while and you've known <laughs> Steven longer, but he's wrong. And uh... I, okay, okay, so I would put this above Eternals. You piece of crap. But hold on. <laughs> but not above Old Man Logan. I have a, like, personal dislike of Old Man Logan, but. I am willing to concede, like, part of the reason that I'm pushing this up so high is because of the strength of the characters of the Sentinels and their, you know, importance to the X-Men canon as kind of one of the best representations of the metaphor of human intolerance. But the story itself is not that good, and so... But I do think that historical importance is enough to put it over the Neil Gaiman Eternal story. They're also a very excellent personification of the merciless and brutal police state that keeps the man down. <laughs> it's ACAB. All cops are bots. A <laughs> <laughs> cab. All cows are burgers. <laughs> I like mine. A cab. All cows are burgers. <laughs> hey, speaking of cows. <laughs> For our next episode, we are going to read a pair of stories. I mentioned earlier, uh, Neil Adams, a very prolific comic creator, known mostly, I think, for his work at DC, but did some work for Marvel. He recently passed away. Because we've read a fair bit of X-Men recently, um, I didn't want to read another X-Men story. However, Neil Adams also contributed to a major Avengers event from the early 70s called the Cree scroll War. This is going to be a hard thing to say over and over again. Trade paperback collection for the Kree Scroll War has this amazing image of the vision kind of bursting in over the crowd of the Avengers uh, with this sort of cryptic message where he says, Three cows shot me down. <laughs> what? <laughs> I believe that's a reference to the first appearance of the Scrolls, where Reed Richards persuaded them or mind wiped them to turn into cows. So instead of his chickens coming home to roost, it was his cows coming home to roost. Coming home to, what do cows do? Chewing cud? I don't know. Uh, yeah, something like that. What? <laughs> I don't know. I thought my phone disconnected. That was the longest silence I've ever had in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and they're only going to get longer, buddy. <laughs> no. The, uh, the second story we're going to read, that's a story from the 70s, and it's, a, it's an event comic. The second story we're going to read is a little bit shorter. It's a story from Peter David's run on the Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man. The story is called Masks. It's issues number six and seven, and it features the uh, 
first and I believe only appearance? <laughs> yes, I think so. The next great character find from Sony Studios, El Muerto. Which means the dead. But not like not like zombies, just the dead. <laughs> it looks like he's a lucha man, and we like our stories about lucha men. I don't know if that's true. I do know that Hellboy has some stories that involve lucha wrestlers, and those are fun. Yes. Wait, there was a lucha wrestler in the Eternal story that we read. Not the Neil Gaiman one, the other one. Wasn't there? Am I remembering I that correctly? Remember. Oh, it was a Thor! Thor fights a lucha guy. Yep. Oh, and it was not as good as you want that to be. Yeah, that sounds cooler in concept. Yeah. Maybe it's better when Spider-Man, who is also a lucha guy, fights a lucha guy. Spider-Man's a lucha guy, right? Yeah, he luchas at the beginning. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he got to start, you know, in the ring, kind of. That lucha does He does mucha lucha. It's a way of life. Oh, man, Lucha Underground was on Netflix for a while. And I watched it one weekend when I was sick. And for a brief shining moment, I understood why people like professional wrestling. And then I felt better and watched the next episode and it was gone. 